Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, it is Thanksgiving the other day. I hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving. I'm going to keep this short and simple. I'm actually recording this, and I'm getting in the car, and I'm heading off uh, to my family gatherings, and so I hope you've had a fantastic Thanksgiving. You ate way too much turkey and stuffing and all that stuff, and uh, you had a great time with friends or family. I also want to acknowledge that for many, uh, the holidays are difficult. Not just the weather changing, but there are people that we wish we could be with that we can't be with. There's people that maybe we feel like we have to be around that we'd rather not. And so I, I want to acknowledge that and just say, uh, I hope that you are able to enjoy uh, this season as best as you are able. We're continuing our study in the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Colossians chapter 3. I want to speak big picture for a moment. There are three institutions that God has created. The government, the church, and the family. The government, the church, and the family. Now, not in that order. First, he created the family, right? He created the family. He said, hey, Adam and Eve, here you guys are. You are a family. Um, there's a lot of different ways people get married. You know, there's, in some cultures, there's arranged marriage. In some cultures, you get to go pick your own. In some cultures, it's a combination of these things. In our culture, generally speaking, uh, you pick your own, although we have assistance, right? We have uh, social networks and digital matchmakers and all these different things. Um, but you create family. And then you create um culture together, right? Families and individuals create culture together. And then you have the government. By the way, the government was created before the church. It was. The, the Bible says that, that the governments are on the Lord's shoulders. Uh, the Apostle Paul was speaking to uh, unbelievers in the city of Athens. And he, he said, hey, don't you know that basically there isn't a government or an empire or a ruler that has not arisen or fallen, if it not by the will of God? That, that God has established human government. When God gave the covenant to the people of Israel and he instituted you know, rules and regulations, the, the basic covenant was, I will be your God you will be my people. That's what's called a theocracy. That is a form of government. Incidentally, there is only one time in human history that the Bible ever sanctions or condones a theocracy, and that's only in ancient Israel. Uh, America should not be a theocracy. There, well, let me say this. There's no biblical reason for America or any other country to be a theocracy. Israel, the current nation of Israel, is not a theocracy. It's a, it's a socialist democratic state. Uh, it is not a theocracy. But that's a form of government. And then there was judges that were raised up. There were elders that formed for local uh, cities and tribes. And so these councils and these judges formed the early uh, Israelite government. And then God said, look, I don't want you to have a king, but there's going to come a point where you're going to rebel against my rule. You're going to sin against me and you're going to ask for a king. So here's the rules for what monarchy looks like. That's another form of government. And so the, God said, all right, when you, there's going to come a time. It's going to be bad for you. I'm going to warn you. This is what will happen if you do this. But you will ask for a king. Here are the rules governing monarchy. 
interesting that even under like something like monarchy, there were rules. There were things put in place. God had order and structure. We, of course, live in a sort of a republic democracy. And that's another form of government. Within the church, God established uh, governance. There were elders, overseers, who were to oversee the church. Um, and in larger situations like Jerusalem or Ephesus or Rome, there were bishops who sort of oversaw the overseers and, and the leader among leaders. And uh, it, you, you kind of went from there. I, I would compare it in our context to we have the elders of our church, the pastors of our churches, and then we have the superintendent who kind of oversees all of us, right? And uh, we were blessed to have Superintendent Brian just ra randomly show up to church last Sunday. Uh, I don't know if that was an inspection tour or if he just, I actually, I know that he, uh, he lives close and he just w wanted to come to church. So, um, but you know, that's the kind of setup we have. God established the family in the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, God established the family. And he confirmed marriage and the family. Jesus' first public ministry was at a wedding. Then he established the government. And then he established the church. And then Jesus told the disciples in the book of Acts chapter 1, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power. And when the Holy Spirit did come upon them in power, the church was birthed and ignited. Why am I talking about all this? Because chapter 3 is about living differently. We've been talking about this for a couple weeks. Chapter 1, because Jesus died, we are now called. We're called to follow Jesus. We're called to faith. We're called into this family, the kingdom of God. We are called to live in that calling. Chapter two, we think differently. Because Jesus died, we think differently. And because we now know the truth, because our, our spirits have been brought to life and we have received this revelation of truth, we can't think the same way anymore. Our old ways of thinking, our old philosophies, our old ideologies don't work anymore. And woe to us if we try to bring the old ways of thinking and try to make them fit within this totally new reality that we live in. But how we think determines how we act. And chapter three is because Jesus died, we live differently. Here's the problem or the challenge, whichever way you want to look at it. When people talk about living differently, especially churches in America in our day and age, and churches in America when I was growing up, because we're talking about living differently, what would happen is this. Churches, preachers, Christians, whatever, would speak of this in terms of people over there, those people, they, them. It's shameful how they are acting. They need to live differently. But in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Do you see what the emphasis is there? It's on me. It's on you. It's on us personally. Those who have followed Jesus, those who have surrendered our lives to him, those who, like last week, we've talked about how when we surrendered our lives to Jesus, 
People might say, when we got saved, that the Holy Spirit of God spiritually cut away that old sinful nature. And our spirits are now free from the bondage of sin and death. And yet our bodies still exist in this fallen world. And we have the um, consequences of the curse of sin and death still around us. We get sick. We grow old. We die. We're still tempted in things. Our bodies are still tempted to give ourselves over to various kinds of sins. But our spirits now can say, no, you're not in control anymore. Again, why was I talking about the family, the government, and the church? The reason is this. When Paul speaks about living differently, because Jesus died, we live differently. He's speaking about us individually. But how we express that, we're not just on our own in an island. Like things didn't, we're not just sitting here and it doesn't affect anyone else. The main ways that we interact with people are through our families, through the church, and through the government or culture, society, however you want to phrase that. Because now I've been raised with Christ and I'm setting my heart on things above. And because I've now died and my life is now hidden with Christ in God, all of these things are true for us who are believers. All of these things are true for us who know Jesus. But how we live these things out takes place in these three larger contexts. And when you think about it, what is the way that I am most able to live it out? Well, I'm far more able to live it out with my family than with the government. You know, something will come up, uh, there'll be a debate in our culture or society, and be honest, living on the West Coast, anytime I've lived in America, it's always been on the West Coast. I've lived in other countries, but I've, anytime I've lived in America, it's always been on the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, California. Lived in all three states. When has it mattered? Like, it was really weird uh, in this last election cycle here in Oregon because we had a couple of elections where it was a toss-up. It wasn't just all one way or the other. And I actually had to think, oh, my vote matters now because before my vote didn't matter, right? When I lived in California, it did not matter how I voted. I knew which candidate was going to win based on the letter next to their name. When I lived in Washington, almost always the same thing. It's never mattered. It's never been a question of who would win my state for the Senate for the governorship, for the presidency. These have almost never mattered. So I haven't had to think much as a voter, if we're being honest, right? And I'm not saying which way I'm voting. I'm just saying if you vote Republican or Democrat or, or you vote this or that, it, it almost never matters. But how I live with my family, the way that I vote in terms of what we do or how we spend or what we engage in or what we watch or whatever, I have huge influence, right? I'm, I'm, one half of a partnership, Angie and I, as we're parenting our children and we have this, this great influence. And then among the church, I, even before I was you know, a pastor, I still had a voice. And you know, if, if it's a church of a couple hundred people and you know, you're there just as a, as a person being part of everything, you have way more influence than you'll ever have as a voter in America. right? These, these ways that we interact with culture, with, uh, with each other, right? It's first lived out in the family because that's where I have the most impact. It's next lived out in the church and then it's finally lived out in the culture, the government, or however you want to look at it. So everything we're about to read, I want us to think of in terms of these constructs. 
It's all about individual choice. These verses are not about us looking over there and saying, oh, you're, you need to do right. We're wagging our fingers. We're shaking our heads. We're saying, you need to live better. Here's the standard I'm going to hold you to. The setup in chapter three is about me individually, personally. I'm not looking to make anybody else live this way. I'm saying, Lord, give me the strength. Help me with your Holy Spirit to live in this way. And then how I live this out in the family, in the church, and in the government or the culture. Verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Again, personal, individual. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So he lists things that we must cut off from ourselves. We've been set free from sin and death, and these are the things that would try to trap us again. And we're called to reject, individually, personally, Sexual immorality. Let me give you a really clear biblical definition of this. And I want to say that this is something that every person will have to deal with on their own. Sex was designed by God. The Bible is very clear, the book of Genesis, that when Adam and Eve, and whether you believe that they are literal people or they are sort of representative of the first humans created by God, I I don't care. Because what the Bible is clear about is that those first people, Adam and Eve, within the context of a relationship, what we would call a marriage covenant, they were sexually active. It says that Adam knew his wife, and that's like the Bible's nice way of saying that they were intimate, that they had sex. So sexual morality is biblical. Uh, Being a sexual being is not inherently wrong because we were created as sexual beings. If, if we have sexual expression within the context of God's created design, there's nothing wrong with that. Marriage between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that is what the Bible would describe as sexual immorality. Anything outside of that, sex outside of the covenant of marriage, is biblically immoral. Uh, and that means before you're married, or if you were married and now you're not married and you're sexually active, with it outside of that context. That means uh, couples engaging in things outside of each other. Um, let's just be blunt here, you know, swinging, uh, pornography, even if individual or some couples use in, within the, the marriage context. That would count. Um, you know, uh, adultery, infidelity, all of these things. They are immoral things linked with impurity linked with living, living lives that are just foul, lust. And, and here I think it's fair to say that lust is probably speaking primarily of sexual uh, 
activity. You know, it's one thing, you know, people say, oh, you can look, but you can't touch. Jesus said the opposite. He, he challenged us. And he said, if you even think about somebody with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with them. It, you say, oh, I've never murdered somebody. If you're so full of rage and hate and bitterness, Jesus said in your heart, you've murdered them over and over again. I do think that there is, it's, it's one thing if you see something and you can't avoid seeing it. I remember I was at a beach once and it wasn't like, you know, sometimes you're like, there's beaches that you better not go to if you don't want to see anything, right? Um, I, I, I've never been there, but I would imagine that it's like, if you go to a beach on like the French Riviera, you're going to see more skin than you would see here at a beach in America, certainly at a beach in Oregon. But I was at a beach at a lake in Canada. It wasn't like a place you're like, oh, well, better watch out. But I remember I'm just walking along the beach with some friends. And I looked over and, oh, there's way more nudity than I was expecting to see here at this Canadian lake beach. But that happens. And I was like, whoa, okay. I'm going to keep walking on. And, and even like, you know, if you're just like a normal person, that's the polite thing to do. You don't gawk and stare. That's, that's impolite. It's, it's not cool. But there, I think you can... You say, look, but don't touch. I think it's one thing if you see something inadvertently. It's another thing if you're looking as if you want to touch. Evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Now, it's interesting that greed and, uh, is, is kind of linked here with this other stuff. And um, certainly money allows for more <laughs> immorality. Um, but uh, this whole thing is idolatry. Is sex an idol? Is sex a false god? In our culture, it 100% is. Is uh, greed, money, power, position, an idol. In our culture, it most certainly is. And he says in verse six, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. One of the narratives that goes around about Christianity is that God will condemn a person to hell for all eternity just because they don't believe in him. But that's not what it is. The Bible says that we have already condemned ourselves, that we have already put ourselves in a position where we are sinners and the wages of sin is death. That the natural consequence, um, you know, uh, one of our kids forgot something to take to school. My wife texts me and says, hey, uh, they forgot this. And they had, we had given them all kinds of opportunities to be able to remember. And I said, natural consequences. And she texted back, I agree. Because what it is, is he's got to learn. Now, I'm not telling you which kid or what, what they forgot or anything, but that kid has to learn that you have a responsibility. We gave you all of the tools, the opportunities. We set certain reminders in place, but it's your responsibility to bring this thing to school. And if we just do it all for him, then he will never learn, right? There are natural consequences to things. If you touch the hot stove, you will get burned. If, if you're not careful around electricity, you will get shocked. If, you, if you're driving 80 and a 40, you're going to get a speeding ticket or more. Actually, 80 and a 40, you're probably getting a uh, reckless driving. I mean, there's there's natural consequences to things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is not coming just because you didn't believe in Jesus or you didn't pray the sinner's prayer. The wrath of God is coming because of the sin of the world. The wrath of God is coming because of human trafficking. The wrath of God is coming because of war. The wrath of God is coming because of greed, which leads to inequity, which leads to suffering, which leads to abuse. The wrath of God is coming because of human evil, human sin, human wickedness. And he says, you used to walk in these ways. Now, can you be a Christian and, and commit a specific sin? Sure. That, yes, we all do. And we then trust in the grace and the forgiveness of God. 
you know, can, can somebody be, oh, how could you be a Christian and be living in sexual immorality? I know plenty who have and a few who are. Could you be a Christian and be living in greed? I know many who do. But, he says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of such things, anger, rage, and slander, and filthy language from your lips. You say, well, this is a whole new list. I'll tell you what, it is incredibly linked. One of the things, there are things with, in terms of sexuality in America that nobody wants to talk about. Um, violence, rage, are all tied to modern human sexuality. It is. You don't believe me? I had a friend who's not a believer, but um, he, at an older age, went back to college. And he's an athletic guy, and he is at this very well-known major four-year college, and he is 10 years older than all of the other students that he's around. And he's still an athletic guy, so he's doing sports stuff, even though he's 10 years older. And, you know, he's, not, he's like, I'm never going to start. I'm not, a, you know, but I'm around these guys. And he said, man, the stuff that they're into, and I mean into sexually, the stuff that they're into in terms of, of how they talk, how they speak. He's like, you'd think we would have gotten better and more respectful of women and the whole thing. He said, no. He says, you know, it, it used to be, you know, I was, I'd get a, you know, steal a Playboy from the barbershop or something. And now, like, he's like, they're, they're talking about things that are violent and, um, you know, uh, incredibly uh, aggressive and, and dangerous towards women. And he was shocked by it. He's not a believer. He's not like, oh, how dare they watch something, you know, sexually explicit. He was, but even he was shocked by it. What I'm saying is that these things, rage and malice and slander and filthy language, 100% linked to greed, 100% linked to, to just evil desires, doing whatever you want. Things get worse, not better. Nobody wants to talk about the epidemic of sex STDs that are, are, are on the rise all through our country. Uh, nobody wants to talk about, like, I want to legalize this drug, and nobody wants to talk about, you know, there is a link between that drug. Not saying gateway drugs, don't, mis don't mistake me. What I'm saying is there is a link between the acceptance of drugs in our culture and the rise of things like the fentanyl crisis, the thing, you know, things that are going on uh, beyond that. He says, don't lie to each other, verse 9, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Be honest with yourself. Now, look, I'm going to talk about this bluntly, like we've, we talked about this last week. There are things, ways of thinking, ideologies uh, that we used to live in, and they were easy for us to accept. You know, I know that's wrong. I'm going to follow Jesus now. I'm going to get rid of that. And then there's things that are harder for us to accept. But what he is saying is, hey, the old self is gone. And so now, as we talked about last week, we change our way of thinking. Now we change our way of living and how we live. Verse 11, or sorry, verse, uh, verse 10, he says, put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. This is why I'm not interested in like giving a list of rules for people and then saying, you better follow these. I'm just telling people, know Jesus, follow Jesus, walk in his ways, engage in worship, engage in prayer, engage in the reading of the Bible. Because as we are renewed in the image of the creator through the work of the Holy Spirit, then we are changed. In verse 11, he gives an example of change. And it's not about like, oh, you stop sleeping around or you stop you know, doing drugs or whatever. He says, here, in the image of the Creator, verse 11, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And if we were to say that in a modern context, we would say, 
Here, it's not about being good people and bad people. Here, it's not being about church people and unchurched people. Here, it's not being about righteous and unrighteous. Here, everyone needs Jesus. And everyone, religious or irreligious, needs to turn from their old ways and follow God. So individually, we, we say, I want that. And then that affects how we live in the family. Hey, you know what? Everybody else has different rules, what we tell our kids. And there's things our kids will come on. We want to do this. We want to watch that. And I'll say, sorry, man, that's just not for us. And I'm not trying to be legalistic. I don't feel like my kids have a heavy-handed upbringing. I certainly saw that when I was growing up from other families. Um, I, I'm very fortunate that generally speaking, I didn't have that, although I'm not, my parents weren't perfect. But there are things that are just not for us. There are things that we just don't do. There's things that we won't be part of. Verse 12, therefore, God, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, forgive one another. And if any of you has a grievance against somebody, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And what Paul's saying is, hey, if you are practicing these things without love, you're not actually practicing these things. It's not about ending, you know, uh, immorality. And how they would have had immorality, by the way. You know, they didn't have the internet. They, they didn't, but they could, you could go down to the local temple. And as part of their worship of their gods, they had the temple prostitutes. Um, you could go to one of the big parties if you were in like Rome or the, the Greek culture and they were these big parties and they would just eat and eat and eat and glut themselves. You could abuse a slave. You could, um, you could cheat your neighbor. You could do all of these things. And he's saying, look, it's not just about not doing those things, but it's about filling your life with the compassion of God, the kindness, the humility, the patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, clothing yourself in love. He says, it's not just about like, oh, we don't do that. Rather, it's more about saying, how can I be more like Jesus? How can the love of God be more fully seen in my life? Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish each other with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Paul says this phrase a couple of times in the New Testament. Let the message of Christ roll richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs. When we sing together on a Sunday morning, there's this debate. Oh, all worship is only God-directed, has nothing to do with anybody else in the room. But that's not what the Bible says. When we sing together on a Sunday morning, we aren't just worshiping God, but we're teaching one another. We're encouraging one another. We're challenging one another. Hey, that person next to me is standing up and they are singing of the faithfulness of God. But you know what? Because I have a relationship with them because we're a church family. I know that they are in a tough season. And so for them to sing about the faithfulness of God challenges me to believe all the more. For them to show up on a Sunday morning despite everything that's going on in their life says, man, I'm in the right place. Because if this is where they need to be, how much more do I need to be there? I believe that as we sing together in worship, it is 
not just declaring the praises of God, not just responding to the work that God's done in our lives, although it is primarily that, but we also encourage each other. We teach each other. We, we lift each other up. He says, whatever you do, verse 17, whether in word or in deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you submit yourself to the word of God, that's an act of worship. If you lift your voice in song, that can be an act of worship. If you pray privately or together, that can be an act of worship. As we use our strength and our energy and our time and our money, that can be an act of worship. Whatever you do, if you do it, do it giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's one of the reasons we don't squeeze people for money around here because we don't want people to give or serve. We're not heavy handed because we don't want people to do so out of this like sense of like, oh, I better do it. Oh, you know, we just want people to do what they're doing. Whether you sing, whether you serve, whether you give, whether you study, whatever you're doing, do it in the joy, giving thanks to God the Father. Now, some of these things are easy for us to accept. Some people say, yep, yeah, I know. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, uh, engage in immorality. Greed is bad. I should clothe myself in love. And then we come to verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, or submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Woo, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. How do we process through that? Wives, submit? Why should my wife submit to me? Isn't she an equal partner? Isn't she smarter than I am? Isn't she like a, a, she's always a better person than me? Don't be harsh with them for husbands. Verse 19, why would I ever be harsh? What would give me grounds to be harsh? Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. What about children whose parents are ridiculous people? What about children whose parents are not stable people? What about children whose parents would have them do evil things? Should they obey their parents in all things? There is a basic concept here in understanding the Bible. We believe that the Bible is literal, except where it's obviously figurative, meaning that if God has spoken these things, then there is literal truth here. It's not figurative. I can read these things and I don't see any figurative language. I don't see, you know, God is my rock. He is my strong fortress, the Psalms say. Well, I can understand that very clearly to be figurative, poetic language. This is literal. What do I do here with this? Well, then you say, okay, what was the context it was written in? Who was the original writer? Who was the original audience? They would have lived in a cultural context where the husband was the head of the home. The wife had no rights. She could not own property. She could not uh, make decisions. She was totally uh, subservient to her husband. Additionally, it would have been common, as a man was able to afford it, for him to have a mistress, a concubine, a, a whoever. You know, a girl on the side would have been understood. And this has been true in cultures all over the world. You have your official public wife and your family, and then you might have your unacknowledged wife or family. Harsh and abusive. Children, obey your parents. Now, 
this has been interesting, and I've talked about this before, but as we've we watched these, the last couple of years we started watching what we call the Alaska shows, you know, Life Below Zero and Port Protection, and, um, Northwest Territories, and these different shows that are on National Geographic. And one of the things that was really interesting, we were watching an episode last night, and they were out moose hunting, and they took two moose. And he thought, well, that's excessive for just this one family. But he said that bigger moose we're going to give to the elders. Meaning, they did all the work, they processed it, they harvested the meat, they got it back, and they took it back to the village. And then they started going around to the houses of older people and giving them some of the meat so that they could have meat because they're, they're not able to hunt anymore. But in their culture, what they say is they go to the elders. Say there, there's an episode uh, we watched last year where uh, they, this guy, and he's like an older guy, like he's well, older, he's older than me, but he's probably what, mid-50s, mid a real experienced guy, but he was coming across a problem that he couldn't figure out. So he took his snowmobile and went over uh, to this other village a couple hours away to ask one of the elders because he said, that guy will know. That guy is 80 years old, but he knows a bunch of things. And that guy's like, oh yeah, we've did this. We had this issue. This is how we fixed it. This idea of honoring the elders in their culture would have had to do with survival. Your primary means of information, your primary means of learning, your prime, like the people who knew what they were doing, if they were still alive, it's because they were the best hunter. They were the best fisherman. They were the one who had learned how to build the best shelter. And, and they were the ones who had known the things of God. And they had walked in the ways of God. So when, when he's saying, children, honor your parents, he's talking about, don't be foolish. These are the people who have the information that you need. But we live in a different paradigm, don't we? My children don't just get information from me. In fact, arguably, they get more from other sources. So as a parent, my role is shifting. My role isn't just a conveyor of information. My role is to help them process through information. I don't tell them what to think. I, we talk about how to think about it. I don't tell them, hey, you have to believe this. I say, okay, so let's think about this. Let's work through this. They come home with an idea or a thought or a statement. And, and it might have been, you know, when you were a kid, you would come home with something like that and you would have been like, what are you talking about? Don't ever let me hear you say that again. Now, sometimes we don't, right? Uh, recently, one of my kids said something disrespectful about their mother. And I could tell that he'd gotten that comment from the schoolyard. And I said, that's not in our house. We do not talk that way about anyone's mother, but especially yours in this house. But mostly they come, they make a statement and say, okay, let's process through that. Are there husbands who are harsh with their wives? Absolutely. Are there wives who are harsh with their husbands? Absolutely. We can take that principle. Even though our context might be different and how it lives out might be different, we take that principle. Wives, submit to your husbands. In Ephesians 5, before it says, wives, submit to your husbands, it says, submit one to another. If I don't have a submissive heart to say, what's best for my wife? My wife has this opinion. My wife has this point of view. This is how she feels. It's legitimate. And I go, well, no, you need to submit to me. Then I'm not living biblically because in Ephesians 5, it says, submit to one another. It is unbiblical for a husband to not submit in partnership to their spouse. And I, I know some people, well, it says in the next verse, wives submit to their husbands. Sure. I do believe that God has called men to lead. I do believe that God has called men to lead in their homes, in the church, and in the culture. Does that mean that women can't lead in the homes, in the church, and the culture? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I think that men are very content to be mediocre. That men are very content to be passive. That men are very content to let the wife raise the kids, let the wife cook at home. You know, oh, my wife's working a full-time job, but then it's like, oh, she has to come home and do this, this, and this. Like, that's ridiculous. 
My, I, I should be an equal partner in all things. There's no thing that's women's work. You know, I changed diapers. I'll go clean the bathroom. I'll make dinner. I can help. I can be an equal partner. And at the same time, I know that biblically, I believe that there is a call and a responsibility on me to set the pace. We all have to process through what that means. And living biblically is going to look different than the rest of the world. Fathers, verse 21, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Right? It just said, children, obey your parents in all things. And yet here Paul's saying, I love what another translation, how it puts it. You know, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Basically, don't piss your kids off so much that they won't listen to you. Don't make your kids so angry at you that you have no influence on their life. Well, my kids need to obey me in all things as to the Lord. Sure, are we setting them up to succeed? My wife needs to submit to me. Okay, fine, but are you setting her up to succeed? Or are you being a tool and making it so that she cannot safely or biblically submit to you? I think there are those who are going to be frustrated that I'm not just reading those verses verbatim and say, that's what the Bible says and I believe it. There's also going to be those who are frustrated that I would even entertain the idea that children should obey their parents or that wives should submit to their husbands or that men should lead in the home and in the church and so on. This is what I say to that as I say to all things. I like dialogue and discussion. Let's process through these things together. Maybe I still haven't processed through some non-biblical cultural view on the thing. Maybe... You haven't processed through some non-biblical cultural view, and all of us need to work together. Remember what he said a minute ago? In the unity of Christ, in the image of the creator, there is no Jew or Gentile. We could say there's no church person or non-church person, religious or irreligious. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. Like all of these things, like we're all equal. And so all of us can process through together what this means. Because it might be easy for me to accept some of those verses. But this next verse is really hard. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it. Not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Working is for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And it is the Lord Jesus you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism. Chapter 4, verse 1. I don't know why it's not chapter... Well, it's not the last verse in chapter three, but it says, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. When it comes to the issue of slavery, I have a hard time with how the New Testament is not exceedingly abolitionist because it's not. Now, if you look at the New Testament and I think the Old Testament from a big picture view, what God does is provides a route away from slavery. In the Old Testament, no one was able to be able to be kept as a slave for their whole life. God said, if you have a slave or a prisoner of war or whatever, an indentured servant, somebody who sells themselves into slavery, which is something we used to have in our culture a few hundred years ago, there was limits on how long that could be for. Every 40 years, year of Jubilee, the slaves are set free. You don't have generations of slaves handed down from masters, families to the, you know, all that. There were ways out of this. If somebody sold themselves into slavery, there were limits. If you, if you went and you had a big battle and you took prisoners and you're like, we're going to make them our slaves. God said, can't do that for more than this. 
God, there are two wills of God. There's the perfect will of God and there's the permissive will of God. What does that mean? It means God has a perfect plan. And if we submit ourselves to it, things will go well. But then there is the permissive will of God. God gives us free will. We can make a choice. We can do the right thing. We can do the wrong thing. And then if we choose the wrong thing, God said, I, I permitted that. And I'm going to do my best with what is here. The Bible says that God works all things together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. All things together for good means I'm going to take this bad choice that you have made or that your family has made or that the church has made or that the culture has made, and I will try to work this together for good as best as possible. And if you look at the language here about slavery, masters, treat your slaves right and fair. And then earlier, Paul says there is no slave or free. Everyone is equal. If you're a Christian master, how dare you think yourself better than those who serve you? I think also, if we're honest, our views of slavery are, we can't help but avoid the American experience of slavery. You know, every, every culture has an original sin and, and America's original sin. I think the two original sins that we have are um, rebellion and and slavery or rebellion and racism. Those are the two original sins that we have. And we can't see it outside of the American context. We've seen Gladiator. Somebody could be a slave and then be freed. Somebody, somebody could be a slave and then rise up to be a, a person of a, a full life. You couldn't do that in American slavery. You weren't a slave just because you were from that town. You were a slave because of a, a bad battle or bad situation, an economic situation. In America, you're a slave because of your skin color. You're a slave because white people hated black people. It's interesting to me, recently, I heard a, a sermon from somebody who I have respect for, but a sermon on sin. And they could have used this chapter as their context, their preaching context, but they didn't. They used a different chapter, but they preached this big sermon on sin and they touched on all of the issues that chapter three of Colossians talks about, except racism. And chapter three of Colossians, even though it is not as anti-slavery as I want it to be, and I fully admit I struggle with it, it is anti-racist. What does it say in verse 11? There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is in all and is all. There's no place for racism. There's no place for misogyny. There's no place for any of those sins in the heart of the Christian in the church of Christ. And yet this preacher didn't mention it once. He listed sin after sin after sin, did not mention racism once. We need to repent of that collectively as a church. I don't think that's an issue in our church, but I'm also not blind that it might be an issue for somebody in our church. It might be an issue for somebody that we know. It might be that we've kind of given, oh, that's just them. That's just how Frank is. And we might call Frank to repentance of other things. Why don't we call Frank to repentance of racism? If your name's Frank, I'm not calling you out. What I'm saying with all of this is this. I really struggle with the last verses of this chapter. Everything about slavery I struggle with. Wives submitting to your husbands I struggle with because I think I'm innately a feminist or egalitarian. I just see everybody as equal. 
And yet they're here and they're not figurative language. And I believe there are concepts and principles. Like for example, as somebody who has been an employee, I have taken the slave verses and said, I'm an employee. How can I be a good employee? Not cheating my employers, not only working hard when somebody's watching. And I have been a manager. As a manager, how can I be a good employer or manager of my team or my people? There are even within these verses that I found problematic, I have found truth and concepts to live by. And then I've trusted God. He knows what he is doing. Everything we're talking about is different than the world. The world around us does not care about immorality. And let me say this, the world around us doesn't care about racism. I know that in, in the Portland area, we talk a big game about equity. We talk a big game about racism. But I was talking to somebody just this week who told me about experiences in racism that they have experienced here in the city of Portland among highly progressive people who would have Black Lives Matter t-shirts and the whole thing. And then they were treated differently as a black person. This uh, recently, the other week at annual conference, somebody else was preaching and they have some adopted children, a couple of whom who are, are not, they're BIPOC. And they talked about you know, being a white guy thinking racism was a thing of the past and then all of a sudden you have kids who are, are, uh, aren't white and they're getting called the N-word and they're getting called other things and you have to come face to face that racism is still alive and well among people who claim to be anti-racist. Because again, this isn't happening in the Ozarks or, or Medford or Boise. It's happening here in the Portland area among people who claim to be progressive. What I'm saying is, is that racism is still alive and well. Immorality is still all over the place. And you think, oh, that's right, because here in Portland, we just say anything sexual is whatever. But you know what? You know where the highest usage of pornography is per capita in America? Utah among some of the most conservative and religiously devout people in the nation. Uh, the top, one of the top states for divorce in America, Utah, among some of the most conservative and highly religiously devout people in the nation. What I'm saying is this, the world around us, old, young, right, left, doesn't matter, traditionalist, modern, doesn't matter. They are all lost in their sins. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Racism, the sin of racism is still prevalent in our people. The sin of sexual immorality, the sin of greed, the sin of rage and anger and malice and filthy language and lies and slander are still prevalent among people and Jesus is saving us and setting us free. And now that we have been saved and set free, the Holy Spirit of God gives us the chance for victory victory, the chance for life change, the chance to cast off these old ways and say, I want to live in the ways of God. And I believe fully in faith that Jesus changes lives. I believe that there are women and there are men who have given themselves over to immorality who now walk in purity. I believe there are women and men who had given themselves over to greed who now walk in charity and self-sacrifice. I believe there are women and men who were full of rage and malice and now are given over with kindness and compassion and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. There are people who have bitterness and resentment and I can't forgive that person who should be at my Thanksgiving table. And yet God gives us the power to forgive. And I believe that God is setting the captives free. And as much as I struggle with these verses on slavery, I do know and I cling to the fact that if anyone lived in these verses, if anyone lived according to these truths, slavery would have been over in a generation. 
And you know what? We're kind of in that place right now. This is how we're all close. One of the reasons why I don't say, hey, this is the truths of God. And so I remember I said we can live in the family and the church and the government. And I don't say we need to march on Salem or we need to march on Washington, D.C. so that we can change things. Because you know what? Things are so bad that maybe we should take a page out of Paul's book here and say, we're not going to change things overnight in our government or our culture. But things can change over a generation or a couple generations. But what can I do in my own life personally? What can I do in the family that I have the greatest impact and influence on? What can we as a church do together and as groups of churches together? And it's possible that there are sins or, or problems that we see in our world around us and we say, Adam, why don't you take a harder stance on those things? And it could be that Paul's just looking out and says, we can't solve this overnight. But if we live in these truths in a generation or two, there can be a huge change. We're not gonna solve things overnight, but in a generation or two, there can be a huge thing. So we're not gonna solve things over life individually, but you know what? In a day, a week, a month, a year, it's amazing the change that can happen as we surrender our lives to Jesus. Again, I said I like discussion and dialogue. Feel free to email us, office at Faith on Hill. On Sunday morning, anyone's free to ask and question and challenge. We have small groups that meet throughout the week and we discuss these things and we tackle these issues. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. We'll see you next Sunday as we finish up the book of Colossians in chapter 4. God bless you. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Can't wait to start singing Christmas songs as we enter the holiday season together.